Hello and welcome to Pablo's channel where I continue with reading New Brighton, a Victoria, a Victoria, a Victorian seaside resort and uh, I'm playing some Pink Floyd in the background we'll just find out uh, what it is Alexa, what's playing? This is side one, part one Please left unsaid from the Endless River Deluxe by Pink Floyd. The Endless River Deluxe, never heard that one. But I like it, and it doesn't seem to be affecting, you know, it's not going to disturb the reading, unless it does change over time. Anyway, let's go. So, we're up to chapter 10, I think it is. Let's have a look. 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Yeah, chapter 10. We're looking at sport and leisure. It's still the uh, 14th of August, and I'm reading it again uh, in the dining room. Uh, I don't seem to have qualified that last time. Yeah, I was in the dining room, looking out the, my window with the beautiful view of the estuary, the Fort Perch Rock, the lighthouse, Waterloo beyond, and even beyond that, Hall Road and Hightown snuggled behind, and just jutting out Formby, Formby Point. Um, okay, so <clears throat> the time has just gone past 9pm, I've had some nice tocadal, uh, my own style, didn't follow any instructions, I just kind of uh, improvised from past goes and it came out nice, got a bit of a Spanish twist to it with my chorizo and uh, I fried the chorizo with some potatoes, to get that Spanish twist and the onions as well. Anyway, so, oh the music is getting a bit more exciting, so... I might pause this if it uh, starts to overtake, but so far it's great. Lovely ambient Pink Floyd sounds. So, Sport and Leisure, Chapter 10, New Brighton Vale Park. I've got a lovely picture here of the building in Vale Park, which is still there. They have a cafe there, and New Brighton Radio is situated there. But to the right of it, we can see New Brighton Tower towering over. It's a beautiful sight. Nicely positioned. Anyway, so in 1830, the area of land now occupied by Vale Park was formerly an estate called Liscard Vale. This being the origin of the park's name. The estate was later divided, <coughs> with the second estate being named the Woodlands, now recalled by Woodland Drive. The road situated at the park's western boundary. In 1898, at the cost of £7,750, both estates were purchased by Wallasey Urban District Council with the intention of providing a lung or breathing space for an increasing population. The combined grounds opened as Vale Park on the 20th of May, 1899. Vale House, built circa 1830, was originally a family home, possibly belonging to a cotton broker, and was later extended. The family of Charles Holland, a Liverpool businessman and William JP, lived here for over 50 years. Charles Holland travelled widely, returning with botanical specimens, and many of the trees now gracing the park were planted by his garden, gardeners, planted by his gardens. 
For much of the 20th century, Vale Park accommodated the park staff. Though it lay disused for some years, the friends of Vale Park encouraged the council to restore it. It opened as a community centre in 1993. Got a picture here of uh, like a what's it? What are they called? You know where they uh, have a roof, wooden roofs, and plants grow on it. Ah, I've got the name. Anyway, so we've got a picture of that. Anyway. William Grinsell Burston was the first head gardener of Vale Park. Though his title was curator, perhaps reflecting the knowledge and expertise of someone in this position at the end of the 19th century. He came to Lisgard Vale as head gardener in 1890. When the estate was taken over by the council, W.G., as he was always known, uh, stayed on and became curator to the new Vale Park. Most of the laying out of the park Arranging the flower beds and paths, etc., was undertaken by him. He was considered to be an expert botanist and spent many hours sorting seeds and discussing rare plants with specialists from Liverpool Museum. W.G. died at Vale Park House in 1918, just at the end of the First World War. We've got another picture here of a more, a more modern picture, and we're looking down. Um, towards the, the, the Mersey and looking down we can see the uh, the bandstand uh, and near to the benches on the path uh, women pushing prams prams still um, yeah how it looks now really <laughs> Ernest Burston WG's youngest son worked as a Vale Park gardener between 1918 and 1946, living with his wife in Vale House, which had been converted into two flats following his father's death. In 1926, a Doric-columned bandstand was constructed and played host to brass band concerts as it continues to do so to this day. Got another picture here of a closer view of the bandstand with a lot of people here, all, you know, um, tempy pews it looks like, but they're all packed out in front of it. Amazing, eh? Vale Park showing the bandstand, New Brighton. The park eventually passed into the hands of Wirral Borough Council and has seen some restoration over the years, mainly due to the efforts of the Friends of Vale Park. A successful application for funding in 1999 enabled restorative work to the bandstand to be undertaken. Works included waterproof treatment to the dome roof and rainwater channels, refurbishment of performers, changing facility, relaying of staging, exterior painting and recladding to the rear elevation to improve the security of the structure. We've got a close view of the bandstand. On that bandstand it has a um, name of famous... Uh, composers as well. I don't know if Beethoven's there, but or uh, List maybe. But yeah. During the during 1999, funding was also sought to replace the entire perimeter fencing of the bandstand site, so both better secure and define the space as a performance events area. This work coincided with the park's centenary celebrations, the, the date of which is commemorated in steelwork topping 
the gate entrance into the area. Got another picture of the building, massive building, lovely building, building Vale Park. The park is still open to visitors, uh, and Vale House now sports a tea room, which offers a relaxing view across the flower gardens, which each year are beautifully presented. So we've got another subheading, underlined and bold, Lantern Parade, New Brighton. And then we've got underneath, Liverpool Mercury, Tuesday, 1st of September, 1896. <clears throat> the spirit of carnival has developed in this district to a large extent during the past few years. And the latest example, a Lantern Parade and Fancy Dress Festival at New Brighton, Ugermont and Seacombe last evening, proved one of the prettiest gatherings of the kind which has been held. Fortunately for the success of the festival, the weather, which is perhaps the chief factor to success in outdoor affairs of this nature, was favourable until the proceedings were well over, and the ladies and gentlemen in fancy dress who formed the procession, and the thousands of spectators who thronged the line of route, were enabled to enjoy the proceedings in comparative comfort. The object of the carnival was to help the funds of the Liverpool and New Brighton Lifeboat Institute. And numerous willing volunteers gave aid in various ways to make the festival a success. The start was made at dusk from the horseshoe at New Brighton Pier, and the procession was divided into sections, each of which was headed by a band. Among the several hundred cyclists who formed part of the procession, some exceedingly pretty, striking and grotesque characters were to be noticed, while the members of the various Harrier, athletic and swimming clubs and minstrel troops who were indefatigable with their collecting boxes were attired in every variety of fanciful and humorous costume. The hundreds of coloured lanterns and lights which the vehicles and cycles were adorned gave a lively and picturesque appearance to the scene as the procession slowly made its way along the appointed route. The first section was led by Chief Superintendent Hindley on horseback, a number of outriders, the local fire brigade, the first Cheshire and Cavanaghshire AV band, the new Brighton lifeboat and crew, drawn by five horses on a lorry. Lorry, sorry. The first Cheshire rural band and the chairman's secretaries, the treasurer's carriage. The second section was headed by the gleam of sunshine band and the ladies' committee carriage. The third by the workshops for the blind band and the fourth by the Morton Brass Band. The route taken was along Victoria Road, Rosen Street, Seabank Road, Ling Street, Egremont, Brighton Street, Seacombe Ferry, uh, St Paul's Road, Church Road, Victoria Road, Seacombe, uh, Liscard Road, Liscard Village, Rake Lane and Upper Brighton. Back to the starting point. A feature of the procession, which showed good organisation, was the prompt start at the advertised time, and the avoidance of delays and stoppages, which, as a rule, characterised undertakings of this kind. The tradesmen of New Brighton and Seacombe materially helped the success of the spectacle by a liberal display of bunting and coloured lanterns, and the discharge of fireworks. Prizes were awarded for the best turnouts, 
both harriers and cyclists, as well as for the best collectors. These were as follows. Cyclist. Best illuminated machine. One. W. Ridley, West Kirby. Sultan. Two. Uh, F. Gell, Lisgard. Eastern Prince. Nita's Costume. One. B. Hands, New Brighton. Japanese. Most comic. T. Smith, New Brighton. Old Lady. A. Madalf. Iris Sailor. Most Original. H. Silcock. West Kirby. Neptune, up to date. Nita's character dress, Lady. Miss Alice Crouch, Italian Flower Girl. Miss Carson, Little Red Riding Hood. Best Tableau, R. Jenkins, Winter. Two, uh, sorry, T. Bell and E. Howard as Weary Willie and his wife on the road. Best Illuminated Tandem, W. and A. Crouch, Duke's Cameo. Two, uh, Brothers Solomon. Darkies. A special prize was accorded to Mr. W.R. Richards for his representation of the famous Sussex cricketer. Prince Ranjit Sinhichi. The judges of the above events were Messrs. F.T. Parry, R.R. Ellis, J. Griefham, J.F. Hughes and F.H. Smith. The Harriers' turnout was none the less attractive and competition in... In this respect, was exceptionally keen. The following were the awards. Were the awards in regard to this particular section? Most comic Harrier H Walker, Zaverian Darkies, Haverian. Uh, that's K. No, sorry, X A V E R I A N. Negro Lady, Nita's costume, J P Breckenridge, Louis the Sixteenth. Most original costume, J F Walker, Light Wellways. 2. E.N.T. Mitchell, King Winter. 3. H. Knight, Tiny. Neatest Dress Boy, Under 14. J.A. Salisbury, Black and White. Neat, neatest Dress Girl, Under 14. Francis Drew, Gypsy. Neatest Dressed on Horseback. I.S.P. Chambers, Indian. J.H. Uh, Scott, Jockey. Neatest Dressed Marshal, On Horseback. S. Lowe, Husser, Most Comical Dress Marshal, On Horseback. Clown, F. Gibson, Special Prizes, Miss Phillips, Harvest, Master A. E. Walker, Mornington Cannon, J. Bushell, Dick Turpin, uh, Nilapolitan, Miss Agnes Agnes Benson, Negro Clown, M. N. Robertson, Red Indian, A. Hume, Charlie's Aunt, H. Hooten, Acrobat, E. Battersby, Dashing Cavalier, Collie, Upside Down, E. Baggett. Illuminated Premises, Extra Prize. Mrs. Tate, 51 Brighton Street, Seacombe. Prizes were given to shopkeepers for special displays, and these were accorded to, one, Mrs. Outran, Victoria Road, New Brighton. Mrs. Dale, Brighton Street, uh, sorry, Mrs. Dale, Brighton Street, Seacombe. Number three, Mrs. Huxley, New Brighton Hotel. In connection with the affair, old English sports were held on the shore at New Brighton in the afternoon. The following were the results. Boys Race, 1. Claude Tregency, 2. Jay Leach, 3. Jay Thornton's, Thornton. Girls Race, 1. Man Jones, 2. Flory Jones, 3. Alberta Clegg, Egg and Spoon Race, Margaret Harrison, Sack Race, 1. Jay Daniels, 2. Jay Leach, Donkey Race. Mrs. Stevenson, climbing the greasy pole. Thomas Hayes, 
The following were the chief officials of the parade. President, Mr. Charles Birchall. Chairman, uh, Mr. J.W. Bryan. Vice Chairman, Mrs. F.H. Smith. R.B. Robertson. J. Griefen. J. Bennett. J. Wardale and R.R. R. Ellis. Honorary Treasurer, Mr. C. Huxley. And General Honorary Secretary, Mr. John F. Walker. Whew, what a list. There you go. Maybe on the Zoom past that if you don't want that again. <laughs> okay, so next subheading. We're still on chapter 10, looking at uh, sport and leisure, or leisure. And this one is called uh, The New Brighton Tower and Fairground. And it's got a picture here of, obviously, the tower and the fairground just in front of it. And the boating lake. Yeah. And to the left there, it's the park, isn't it? Bale Park. I mean, so beautifully designed, isn't it, really? I mean... So, back before I was born, New Brighton was a great British seaside resort. It was more popular than Blackpool. Wow. Offered many things to enjoy, and at one one point in time, had the highest tower in Britain. By the time I was born, in 1981, it was all gone, and as if it never existed. How did a booming leisure resort disappear virtually overnight? Good question, Tony. Franks. Buckley. First of all, we must mention the tower which really was a truly remarkable landmark that featured on the New Brighton waterfront at the end of the 19th century, which expressed the rise of the small seaside town into a busy recreational resort. Uh, Liverpool Mercury, Monday the 10th, February 1896. There can be no doubt that the efforts being put forward by public bodies and private individuals to make New Brighton one of the most attractive seaside resorts in the north will meet with the approval not only for visitors but for the majority of residents majority residents in the district. So yeah. We announced in our columns a few weeks ago that a scheme had been decided upon for the establishment of a pleasure resort in New Brighton on lines somewhat similar to those at Olympia in London. That project has now assumed definitive shape and the site, the estate of the late Captain Molyneux on Rock Point, has been secured by a company at the head of which is Mr R.P. Houston, MP, who have paid a deposit of over £2,000 to the trustees of the property. The grounds, as already indicated, are about 500 yards to the south of the pier and are bounded on the east side by the river. I think it's the east side, it says EST. S side. The promenade, which is to be extended from the magazines Eagremont to New Brighton, will give convenient access to the grounds, whilst an upper entrance will be provided in Roshan Street. One of the principal features of the scheme will be the Eiffel Tower, such as was erected in Blackpool. And it will be interesting to the public to know that at the present times, excavating operations are in progress in order to prepare the foundations of the tower. So I just had to change the music, it's getting a bit loud, wasn't it? 
more quiet, relaxing, soothing, you know, given space sounds so you can hear what I'm saying. So yeah, so that the scheme is one of immense proportions will be readily realised when it is stated that it is the intention of the company to spend something like a quarter of a million of money in providing grounds in which will be found attractions of every conceivable character. We understand that the company have also acquired the lease and interest of the Royal Ferry Hotel, close to the pier, which establishment we believe Captain Walters has for some been connected with a gentleman of enterprise like Mr. Houston at the head of affairs. It is expected that the scheme will be a great, will be a great success. There seems to be no reason to fear that the pleasure grounds will injure the palace, for there will be, well, doubtless be generous support given to both places by the increased number of visitors who are sure to find their way to New Brighton. It should be added that the new company has spared no pains to secure every possible advantage in order to make the scheme as popular as possible. Indeed, it is stated that they recently approached the Wallsey District Council with a request that the present landing pier might be removed to a position directly opposite the grounds. This request they backed up with an offer to build a new pier if the council approved of the idea. That matter, however, we find fall through as the council could not see their way to interfere with the present position of the landing pier which they pointed out was directly in a line with Victoria Road, the principal thoroughfare of the district. We've got a picture here, a bit odd really, of the um, New Brighton Pier diagonal. Or then a, a comparison picture for scale. Oh wow, so it's nearly the whole length of the RMS Lusitania and Mauritania. So the height of New Brighton tier, Pier was 621 feet. And the Lusitania Mauritania is longer, though. It's 790 feet long. But yeah, wow. It shows how big the ship is, doesn't it? <laughs> the statistics of the tower when it was complete. Uh, start date, 22nd of June, 1896. Completion date, 1900. Exact date unknown. Cost, 120,000. <laughs> 120,000 pounds. I like that. That's how much my apartment was <laughs> beautiful beautiful materials over 1000 uh, tons of steel height uh, 567 feet 6 inches to the top of the flagstaff height above sea level 621 feet architects Maxwell and Turk of Manchester from Manchester the architects uh, builders Handy Sides and Company of Derby. We've got another picture of the tower. Just like Blackpool Tower, you know. With the ballroom underneath and to the right, the ship. The New York Brighton Tower was patterned on the world-famous Eiffel Tower in Paris. Paris! It all started when a newly formed company called the New Brighton Tower and Recreation Company Limited, with a share capital of £300,000, decided to purchase the Rock Point Estate of over 20 acres. The tower was to be 544 feet high, with assembly hall, winter gardens, refreshment rooms and layout with a cycle track. The tower was to be more elegant than Blackpool's. Shares were £1 each and the tower would be made of mild steel. Another picture here, a close-up of the tower. 
seen in all its glory. During the construction of the tower, six workmen were killed and another seriously injured, either through falls or accidents. On completion, the tower was the highest building in the country. Soon after the tower was opened, a young man threw himself off the balcony to be the first suicide from the building. Wow. Four lifts took the sightseer to the top of the structure at a cost of 6D. From there, you could see for miles around, including the Isle of Man, Great Orm's Head, part of the Lake District and the Welsh Mountains. The view must have been amazing. The tower is said to have attracted around half a million people in the year. New Brighton, New Brighton by moonlight. Yeah, there is. Along the, it's a picture. Along the tower, a ballroom was built and was one of the largest in the world with a sprung floor and dance band stage. The orchestra had as many as 60 players and well over 1,000 couples could dance without overcrowding. It was decorated in white and gold with emblems of various Lancashire towns. There was a balcony with seats to watch the dancers below and behind this was an open space where couples could learn to dance. There was also a fine billiard saloon with five billiard tables and above the ballroom was a monkey house and aviary in the elevator hall. There was even a shooting gallery! Exclamation marks. There we are looking at uh, you know, people dancing on the ballroom with the parquet flooring. Looks very big, yeah. Wow. And another picture of Mayor's Ball at the New Brighton Tower. And a lot of people on the on the floor there. Hmm. All well dressed up. As well as the tower and ballroom, the area was surrounded by a tower gardens complex. The tower gardens covered something like 35 acres in all, with a large Japanese cafe at the lakeside with real gondolas that had Venetian gondolas. There were also a fountain and seal pond in the old quarry with its rockery. Then there was a Parisian tea garden where one could have a cup of tea while watching the Pirates. Pirates, Pirates. I'll have to find out what that is, the Pirates. P-I-E-R-R-O-T-S. Towards the river end, there was an outdoor dancing platform which held a thousand dancers where the military band played, stating at nine o'clock, starting at nine o'clock in the morning, in the height of the season. Above the dance floor was a high wire for tightrope walking without any safety net. Oh God. The tightrope walker was a man by the name of James Hardy, who had a bet with another man that he could walk across the rope with a gill on his shoulders. He won his bet when he carried the barmaid from the ferry hotel across his back which was quite an interesting tale to have been told. We have a picture there of Newbank Tower from more of a right angle. You know, we've gone round the bend and we can see residential homes in front of it. There are also other light orchestras which play here and a variety of performances in the theatre in the afternoon. A good restaurant called the Rock Point Castle was situated amongst the trees with lovely pathways to wander around. The tower grounds had their own private police force of up to 50 men who parade around and keep order. And the picture here, just trying to work out that way. It's, it's, oh, it's a, a building right under, beside um, 
the ballroom tower, you know. And then we've got another picture of the fairground, how it's so close to the ballroom. However, the tower did not last for long. After the outbreak of the First World War, the public were no longer allowed to venture up to the top of the tower for military reasons. In the war years, the steel structure was neglected and became rusty through lack of maintenance and the cost of renovating was more than the owner could afford. So sadly, this became the beginning of the end of the tower. The top portion of the structure commenced to be dismantled on the 7th of May 1919 and was completed in June 1921. The brick portion comprising of the ballroom and theatre remained, together with the turrets. During the Second World War, the basement was used as a communal air raid shelter. The fairground remained with the ballroom and other surrounding features until its final fate during the fire of 1969. The old English fairground was on a higher level, which in later years became the Motor Coach Park. The Himalayan Switchback Railway was a great favourite, as was the water chute, with the boats travelling down at speed into the lake. The railway had previously been at the Brussels Expedition. In the Lion House were Prince and Pasha, two beautiful cape lions. There was also a good collection of other animals in the menagerie. We've got the looking down straight to the fair like we're looking down oh like we're going down uh, what are they called one of these like elevators like in ski lifts going down into the fairground by yeah it looks proper like the Blackpool fair pleasure ground you know the way it's all by 1961 when the photograph above was taken the park had changed significantly with several new rides and sideshows the photograph was taken from the cable car ride, which whisked passengers from the beach level to the upper areas of the park. The Beatles, also around this time, played the Tower Ballroom. This was proof of how popular New Brighton was at the time. The Beatles' final appearance at the Tower Ballroom took place on Friday the 14th, June 1963, on a special NEMS Enterprises presentation of their Mersey Beach Showcase series. The Beatles were supported by Jerry and the Pacemakers and five other groups. And there they are, the young lads in the ballroom. Playing away. Disaster struck in 1969. The fire, the fourth that the tower had suffered, started on Saturday the 5th, April 1969. The call was received at Wallasey Fire Station just after 5am in the morning. The manager and staff had left the building the night before about 8.30pm. After a routine check, the stage area was not included in their check. A police constable discovered the fire in the stage area in the west wing of the tower early next morning. There had been four fires at the New Brighton Tower grounds since it first opened in 1898. The last came in 1969, being the most destructive which led to its final demise. So, uh, next subheading, the first fire at the tower. So, all these fires. Stephen Hawkins, are like, isn't it? So, yeah, the first fire at the tower. 
Builders were still working on the higher portion of the tower structure, even though the tower grounds had just opened in 1898. To protect the crowds below the workmen, uh, the workmen had placed wooden planks around parts of the building to prevent injury from, from falling bricks, etc. On the 3rd of April, 1898, shortly after 10pm, Wallasey Fire Brigade were called out who rushed to the scene to find that the wooden planks, 172 feet up, were ablaze. Their manual pump was not powerful enough to reach that, that height, so the Birkenhead and Liverpool Fire Brigades were asked to attend with their steam pump. Birkenhead Fire Brigade agreed to attend, but firstly had to obtain permission to leave their borough from the council, and Liverpool had to wait for the luggage boat to steam up. Whilst both brigades delayed in attending, the Wallasey firemen had already climbed onto the planks and were tackling the flames. Tragically, a young volunteer fireman, Jim Shaw, a bricklayer from Seacombe, fell 80 feet to his death after losing his footing while attempting to reach the fire. By the time the other brigades had arrived after midnight, the fire had burnt itself out. Measures were taken to improve the fire service after the death of the Wallasey firemen. It was decided that the manual pump would have to be replaced by a modern engine, and an order was placed for a new Shand Mason horse-drawn steamer. So that was the first fire. Wow, and very early on. <laughs> 1898. The second New Brighton Tower fire. The second fire happened on Thursday evening on 20th January 1955. Fire broke out in the cafe on the third floor and protected only by a wall nearly spread to the large ballroom. The fire was reported by the ballroom manager, Cyril Isherwood, at 7.25pm and with the watchman, John Williams, not the composer, tackled the fire with a mobile extinguisher until the fire brigade arrived. The Wallasey fire brigade arrived within minutes and fought the blaze that was over 60 foot from the ground. The flames rose to 25 feet whilst the firemen tackled the blaze from two sides of the building. Three appliances poured water through the office window and after 15 minutes the fire was under control. The catering manager's office was destroyed. The chief fire officer, Joseph Holt, H-O-L-T, said, If the fire had not been discovered when it was, the whole ballroom would have been involved and the flames might have spread up the building, as well as below. If they had reached a lift shaft nearby, this would have acted as a flu. So you had a close shave in 1955. The third New Brighton Tower fire. The third fire at the New Brighton Tower which had broken out in the social club and spreading to the ballroom, was reported by the general foreman, Alex McIntyre, at 7.30pm on 17th of August 1963. After raising the alarm, Mr McIntyre, Mr, what it says, Mr. Intire, <laughs> lowered the theatre's safety curtain and asked the early dancers to vacate the ballroom. The amusement park was also cleared, as many as 26 appliances and 160 men from Wallasey, Birkenhead, Cheshire, Liverpool and Lancashire Brigades were involved in tackling the fire. 
for four hours the firemen tackled the flames and prevented it from spreading to the ballroom, but the clubroom and balcony were destroyed. Deputy Fire Chief Frank Fradley, who directed the operation, said at one stage it was touch or go whether the entire building would become involved, but everyone did a magnificent job. Then we've got the last one, the final fire at the tower. The death of the tower. Um, we've got a pitch here of the smoke. A big sign saying bumping. On Saturday the 5th of April, 1969, a call was received at 5.08am that a fire had erupted at the New Brighton Tower. The night before, the manager and staff had left the building at 8.30pm after a routine check, but the stage area, which is believed to, to, believed to where the fire started, was not included. I've got a picture here of the ballroom in flames. Well, can't see any flames, but smoke, thick smoke coming from the roof and a crane just to the left of it. The fire brigade was soon on the scene and were met with large bellows of smoke pouring out the windows and sections of the building collapsing. With the collapse of the wall, it exposed the ballroom and theatre to the open air and it allowed the flames to reach other parts of the building. Matters were made worse by the fact that the tower building, uh, the, that the tower boating lake had been drained so the fire brigade had major difficulties in obtaining water. Three relays had to be used to pump water from Marine Lake which was some distance away. See all the hoses just out draggled on the floor there. With the lack of water it was soon apparent that the ballroom would be a complete loss. Parts of the roof began to collapse and there were two blasts on the fifth floor as compressed oxygen and dissolved acetylene cylinders acetylene, uh, were exposed to the fire. Luckily, no one was hurt. Firemen had managed to get into the building on the south of the staircase, but could go no further due to fallen debris from the collapsed roof. Soon after 7am, less than two hours after the alarm had been raised, there were 25 pumps at the scene of the fire, and relief crews were being called in from Birkenhead, Liverpool, Chester County and Lancashire County with over 150 firemen being at the scene with 20 pumps and 4 turntable ladders. The Chief Fire Officer, Mr E. E. Bushenfield, sent for 5 more pumps but it was obvious that the fired fire crew's lives were in danger as the blaze became far too serious to tackle so a decision was taken to allow the building to burn. It was the end of the tower. And there you go, there it is burning. It would be an amazing sight to see it go though. But, wow, what a way to go. Like the twin towers of New Brighton, isn't it? <laughs> the ballroom tower. <laughs> New In all, 1,191 firemen and 37 officers had fought the fire. There were 25 pumps, four turntable ladders, a snorkel, a heavy water unit, and a control unit at the scene. And there's a picture there of a fireman squirting it with water. To no avail. All burnt down there. Another one there. 
An examination of the burnt-out remains uh, was not possible due to the condition of the remaining walls. Deputy Fire Chief Alex Dean said a further investigation of the cause of this fire was made by the Fire Department in consultation with the Home Office Forensic Department and the Cheshire County Police. After elimination of the possible causes, it seems that this fire was due to unauthorised entry to the building and subsequent vandalism or accident in the ignition of the stage area caused by vandals. There could have been no other cause. Electricity and gas had been cut off, so these were eliminated and there were no other source. There was a lack of direct evidence to pinpoint vandals, but it is the only source that was left. How sad, eh? How you can just do it? Yeah. Another picture there of it burning down, full of smoke. Steps were soon taken to have the charred shell of the once proud New Brighton Tower building demolished. In the 1970s, the area where New Brighton Tower once stood was redeveloped as Riverview Park. Sadly, the Tower Ballroom fire is, in 1969 became the end of an era in New Brighton which never recovered or rebuilt after the incident. The fire was the end moment for the area, with the fairground closing immediately, leaving only the New Brighton Palace as a place for small entertainment compared to the delights that had been previously on offer before the fire. Next up heading, New Brighton Palace. You got a picture there of lots of women actually, well dressed. The shops in the arcade, with a vault in the arcade. Kenneth Smith's latest electric something. Admission fee. Music all day. Hmm? It says here then, New Brighton Palace. In June 1876, a new company was formed. It was called the New Brighton Palace Co. And it had a share capital of £100,000. The aim of the company was to build a new entertainment centre in the up and coming resort of New Brighton. Land alongside the beach was acquired and work started on laying the foundations for the buildings. However, work soon came to a stop and it seemed unlikely that the project would be completed. A local resident, Mr. Lawrence Connolly, saw the possibilities and bought the site. He completed the buildings and the palace opened in 1880. In the winter of 1880, a new saltwater bathing pool was added. During the 1882 season, the palace averaged 10,000 visitors per week. Uh, major changes were made for the 1883 season. So I just had to follow that tune because the voices are coming in. Uh, so the Liverpool Mercury for the 22nd of March 1883 described it as follows. The palace, winter gardens and grotto which had been built by Councillor Connolly, promised to prove a highly popular place of recreation amongst the many holiday makers who visit New Brighton in the summer months. Extensive alterations and improvements have been carried out during the past winter, and every effort has been made to render the palace and its accessories a thoroughly attractive pleasure resort. The whole covers, the whole covers an area of about three acres, a portion of this space being occupied by splendid seawater baths. In the palace proper, the Great Hall, which has an area of 22,000 square feet, has been completely redecorated since last season and has been converted into a charming salon, uh, salon for music and dancing. 
The walls have been painted by Mr. T.W. Greve of London, who has depicted a succession of picturesque views of English and Irish scenery from Kildare to Richmond. The ceilings have also been elegantly decorated, and the columns and pilasters have been adorned with mirrors. In the winter gardens, the greenhouses, which have plentifully stocked with tropical and other plants, and they already look bright and beautiful with a variety of blossoms. A spacious open-air skating rink has also been constructed on the roof of the concert hall. There has also been provided a recreation ground for children, a well-stocked aviary and monkey house, and a smaller concert hall. The most attractive addition, however, is an agreeable grotto, which will afford a cool and refreshing retreat in warm winter. It has been constructed by Mr James Cross of Southport and Manchester. James Cross, eh? That reminds me of Brompton Avenue, my neighbour. He was called James Cross. <laughs> what a man. And measured 140 feet by 120 feet. The grotto contained a large waterfall extending from end to end, a distance of 131 feet and several cascades interwined with enartments uh, between the archways play fairy fountains of Swiss design. In the centre is a recess constructed of coral and other grotesque formations. And in the middle of the recess, a fairy fountain showers, showers crystallised sprays of water. Rugged rockwork, relieved of, um, with rich ferns, gives the grotto a charming aspect. And the effect is enhanced by the water jets from many fountains of varied designs, erected at different elevations. The crypt is supported by over 40 iron columns, all richly embellished in rustic fashion to represent trees, and these have been surrounded by hardy ferns and mosses of various kinds. Whilst the fountains and artificial rivulets have been abundantly supplied with mosses, lichens and aquatic plants, numbering altogether over 12,000. Two advertisements were placed in the era, a London-based weekly paper covering theatrical matters in January 1883, the first offering for rent, 1,600 square yards at the palace for a circus or similar. The second advert was looking for new and substantial entertainment and sideshows for 1883 for the season. The opening on Good Friday, 1883, was marked by a grand concert and a variety show. This was the pattern followed by many years, with entertainment of all types being provided, from classical music to variety. As the reputation of the palace rose, due in no small part to the quality of the sacred music concerts on Sunday afternoons, many famous classical musicians and singers and many popular variety acts appeared. In order to perform a play in those days, a licence was required. The palace applied for a licence in 1887, but the request was turned down. In 1896, the building was bought by a Manchester syndicate who planned to build a giant ferris wheel on the roof. The wheel would have had 42 carriages, each of which would have held 40 passengers. This was never built. When the Tower Theatre opened in 1898, business at the palace was drastically affected, but the theatre managed to keep going. In 1903, to increase the numbers of patrons, 
it became the first hall in Wallasey to show animated pictures. Next uh, news report heading. Liverpool Mercury, Monday the 15th of April, 1895. This popular place of amusement was open for the season on Saturday, and throughout the day it was crowded with pleasure seekers, a fact which augurs, augurs, A-U-G-U-R-S, augurs well for a successful season. Many improvements have been carried out in the extensive buildings with a view of enhancing the pleasure and comfort of visitors. The commodious ballroom, where a full band plays for dancing, is charmingly decorated throughout, as also is the large and cosy theatre. The grotto, which will have a special attention paid to it during the season, during with the, together with the open-air terraces, will certainly prove most attractive to those who wish to take a stroll after leaving the ballroom. There are also well-stocked aviaries, a shooting gallery, and several other attractions in the place which will enable visitors to spend a most enjoyable time. Mr C. Gray Smith, the secretary and manager who catered so well at the palace last year, is again at the head of affairs, and on Saturday provided a treat for his patrons in the shape of an excellent concert in the theatre. The artistes were Miss Marie Burnett, soprano, Madame Emile Young, contralto, Mr George Barton, tenor, Mr. Eaton Batty, baritone, and Mr. William Pagan, humorist. Alexa, next. That was the last song. Oh, right. Over. Decided to play uh, Umma Gumma by Pink Floyd. There was a large audience present at both the afternoon and evening concerts. And each item of the programme was much enjoyed, whilst in several instances, encores were demanded. The theatre orchestra accompanied the various items in a satisfactory manner, under the leadership of Mr J. Clayton. For today, Monday, further attractions are provided. Entertainment will be given in the grotto of Descaro, D-E-S-K-A-R-O, the juggler, and in the rink of Sizi. S-I-Z-I and Cassia. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and in the rink and the rink by Sizi, S-I-Z-I and Cassia, acrobats. In the theatre, both afternoon and evening will appear the four Aubreys. Sketch artists and horizontal bar performers Patty Joel, song and dance artist and banjo soloist. The Edenism sketch artists, Rose Harvey, contralto vocalist, and Winifred Yates and the Robert Emsley, who will contribute vocal tableau vivants. As regards to the future engagements at the palace, Mr. Smith has made arrangements with some of the best-known music hall artists to appear during the season. So this, pl- this place of amusement should prove attractive to all visitors to New Brighton. And there's a picture there of the palace. Looks like it's an art deco.
So yeah, in 1907, Wallasey Corporation used its powers under the Tramways and Improvement Act to buy the notorious Ham and Egg Parade and the most of the other properties, including the palace which fronted onto the river. A new, wider parade and seawall were built. The newly formed Tavoli Company took control in 1913. Their plan was to rebuild the palace and build a new arcade and hotel. And however, these plans were abandoned when problems arose over the building of the Tavoli Theatre. We've got a picture here of, it says here, Wilkie and Co. Joy Wheel being licensed. We're looking at the front entrance of the stage or something there. Um, the next tenant was Mr. Ludwig Blackner, who renamed the building the Gaiety and carried out many improvements. Towards the end of the 19th century, a Birkenhead rope maker named George Wilkie joined a travelling fairground. After 12 years with the fair, he leased at least part of the palace site and set up a fairground. You can see the, uh, what they call the carousel. Horses got on the carousel. A joy wheel was located next to the theatre. Joy wheels were popular. Is that what it is then? Not joy wheel. Joy wheels were a popular, though short-lived, novelty ride in the early part of the 20th century. Riders sat on a low, conical disc in the centre of the enclosure. The disc rotated at increasing speed, gradually flowing the riders off. The wheel was surrounded by tiered seating to enable spectators to watch. Wow. And then we've got a picture of it, not with no one there, derelict, <laughs> of the, uh, the, wheel, you know, the joy wheel. In 1916, much of the site was destroyed in a disastrous fire. Only the theatre and the skating rink were saved. There is little information on the palace complex at this time, but it seems likely that the site was split up into at least two parts. The theatre being run by Mr. Blattner and the rest of the site by Mr. Wilkie. There are also very few records as to what was in the fairground, although it is known that Mr. Wilkie bought a second-hand Burrell traction engine after the First World War, the cinema, which by now had a separate entrance in Virginia Road. Closed at the end of 1926. In 1936, Mr. Wilkie demolished what remained of the old palace complex and put up a new building to house an indoor fairground. The building was called the New Palace and was completed in 1939, where a new roundabout was being built on the promenade. Workmen discovered some unmapped caves. Mr. W. Wilkie had the caves dug out and constructed blast-proof rooms in the caves. A munitions factory was set up and production started in March 1942. The weekly output of the small factory under the promenade was 250,000 machine gun bullets, 25,000 shells and 1,400 press button switches for aircraft radios. After the Second World War, the indoor fairground prospered and in 1949 the Wilkies opened a circus on a piece of land next to the new palace, the area which would later be occupied by the Bright Spot Amusement Arcade. <sighs> 
Some of the rides remained in the new palace for many years. One of the best known of these was the Jets. The Jets were an early example of a rider-controlled machine. The rider used a a lever to control a pressure valve, which raised and lowered the arm. The machine in the new palace was the result was well, sorry was the third one built and was bought new in 1955. The jet remained in the new palace until 1995 when it was sold. I've got a picture here. Is it the joy reel? It's indoor this time. Then. Over the years, the ride was modernised. The original jet planes. I'm sorry, these are jet planes were replaced by spaceships and the lattice arms were panelled. Another long-standing ride was the Waltzer, which was originally built in 1938 and was bought second-hand by Mr. Wilkie in 1950. This was the last Waltzer built before the Second World War. The Waltzer was sold in 1997. Both these rides are now in preservation and it is a testament to the care given to these machines that they and many other rides owned by Wilkie are still in existence. Otherwise, didn't stay as long in the fairground. Wilkie bought his, 19, his 1959 Autodrome second-hand in 1985, and it only remained until 1990. You can see a picture here of Wilkie's Wonder Waltzer. Hmm. Oh, great Waltzer, though. In, 19, in the 1960s, as with everywhere else in New Brighton, trade at the New Palace fell off. The fair struggled on for many years, but by the 1980s, things were getting desperate. By the late 1980s, David Wilkie took over running the New Palace, and much of the fairground was cleared out to make space for... I a, don't know, but I found these results on search. Oh God. To make space for, the, for a go-kart track to be built. This brought in new customers and improved the situation. And now we're just looking at the new palace building with a lot of shops there. How it is now, basically. You know, you've got like a fish and chip shop there. It does perch fish bar, that's what it's called, yeah. That's still there, amusements. So this is a very up-to-date picture. The go-kart track was closed in 2001 and David Wilkie had the Bright Spot Arcade and much of the new palace demolished. The facade and the shops at the front remained. The new palace, now an outdoor fairground, continued still under the control of the Wilkie family. The Bright Spot has now been demolished and replaced by a small outside fairground. The building now also houses a nightclub as well as a traditional cafe with a donut stall catering the indoor arcade housed inside the, the remaining part of the building. So yeah, getting a few shots of the the new palace building. See a bit of a slide beside it there. <laughs> Next subheading is uh, this is a long a long uh, shot to this. Yeah. Sorry, just looking through the pages here, and there's still a lot to go. A lot of pictures here. Keep going. Yeah. Wow. This is a long one. I think I'm just going to have a pause a sec. New Brighton Football Club. New Brighton, 1948 to 49. 
the once flourishing holiday resort of New Brighton, with its excellent beaches, now a housing dormitory for Liverpool, was a, ta- was a town day trippers would flock to just before the turn of the 20th century. Green for that one. The tower dominated the skyline, a structure that rivaled the Eiffel the Eiffel version in Paris, and its attractiveness was added to with the provision of fairgrounds and amusement parks. Some events were staged at the Tower Athletic Ground in the shadow of the impressive structure. In order to provide a winter attraction to New Brighton, local businessmen clubbed together to launch their own football team early 1897 by the name of New Brighton Tower FC. Not formed for a change by a bunch of cricketers, rugby players or schoolboys, but by a business organisation with little more than pure commercial intent. There was a certain degree of resentment towards New Brighton Tower, a club apparently intending to buy their way to the top. Therefore the team were accepted into the Cheshire League only, at the time considerably low rated than the neighbouring Lancashire League. Despite this setback, New Brighton Tower managed to attract first-class players to assemble a suitable team that soon became known as the team of internationals in newspaper resorts. <laughs> reports. We've got a picture here of the stadium. Would have been quite close to where I am, really. I'm going to look at it. I think I can see... New Brighton Tower played their first football league game in Division 2 in 1898. The Towerites, the Towerites as they were officially nicknamed, took on Gainsborough Trinity clad in white shirts with blue trimmings and blue shorts. Their league days were to be short-lived. The Towerites were on the brink of promotion in 1899, but that was not good enough for our business friends who had demanded first division football from the beginning. The 1899-1900 season petered away into diff- indifference in front of the meagre attendances. New Brighton Towers directors vowed to make one last determined effort for promotion in the next campaign. The Towerites kicked off their do-or-die season in wonderful salmon-pink shirts with black trimmings and white shorts. Rarely attracting more than 3,000 crowds to the tower ground, the team again missed out on promotion. Alas, as a result, English top-flight football has never seen salmon-pink shirts. 
the business venture that was called New Brighton Tower finally folded in August 1901. And then we got a close view of the pitch there with the tower grounds behind, well, the tower ballroom, sorry, behind. Such a big structure, that tower ballroom. Yeah. So, I've got an uh, article here. Liverpool Mercury, Saturday, 23rd of December, 1899. Holiday fixtures, Christmas Day. The League, Division 2. Grimsby Town v Chesterfield Grimsby. Lincoln City v Woolwich Arsenal Lincoln. Leicester Foss v Loughborough Chester. New Brighton Tower v Sheffield Wednesday Tower Grounds. New Brighton, Walsall and Barnsley Walsall. Senior football came back to the tip of the peninsula by the end of, 19, of the 1920s, just over on the other side of the Mersey. South Liverpool were struggling, who found themselves with no ground after having left the Dingle Park ground and a full set of Lancashire combination fixtures to fulfil. The club transferred across the Mersey to a willing set of football enthusiasts rather than commercial sharks. It was suggested that the club should be called Walsey Town FC, but in fact were renamed New Brighton. They inherited the first colours of their predecessor and played in white shirts with blue trimmings and blue shorts, with a shielded NBA FC monogram, which they were elected to the Football League in 1923, along with Dawn City to fill two vacancies in Division 3 North. Heavy rain showed that the Wirral support was fickle, with only 3,000 turning up for the first game at Sandhays Park. The location of this enclosure near Rake Lane inspired the, the nickname, sorry, the Rakers. We've got another picture of the, of the pitch with no one on it this time. Worthier note was an FA Cup clash at this ground in 1927 against the illustrious Corinthians who sported gold, white and purple striped shirts due to a colour clash with the Rakers. When New Brighton reached a low ebb in 1936, they changed to red and white striped shirts with blue shorts in an attempt to change fortunes. New Brighton's future looked bleak after, host- after the hostilities of World War II ended. The club's ground was taken over by the council to build houses to replace those lost in the war. They were also without any playing gear or any equipment, and all the club had left was its precious football league membership and a willing band of volunteers who managed to secure their predecessors, Tower Ground, and the purchase of maroon shirts with white shorts. Meanwhile, they retained their nickname despite their geographical move. In 1947, they made the history books when a player shortage saw 52-year-old manager Neil McBain turn out in goal to become the oldest player ever to appear in a football league match. Yet another change of colour in 1950, this time to red shirts with white sleeves and white shorts, couldn't prevent New Brighton from losing its league status one year later to Wokington. Despite more financial problems and regular ground moves, the club survived through to the 1980s, but shut down in 1983 when they were paying an unenclosed ground on unenclosed ground in the Wirral League. 
New Brighton FC started up again and played their games at Harrison Park, New Brighton. They have won and been runners-up in several local cup competitions and received an award for best programme in the regional football league. The club is making every possible step to find their own ground and to be recognised as the Rakers once were. With their history, however, it is perhaps surprising that they didn't call they aren't called the Chameleons. However, following the 2011 to 2012 uh, season, the committee stepped down with nobody filling the void, which has seen the withdrawal of both senior teams from the West Cheshire divisions. And there you go, that's the football. Ah, yes, the Guinea Gap. The gu- I mean, it's interesting, the Guinea Gap, but. This, uh, this uh, next subheading is Guinea Gap Baths. Interesting, Baths. And there's a nice frontage of a building there. Is that the frontage of the Guinea Gap Baths? I don't know, we'll see. Guinea Gap Baths in Seacombe. It's the oldest pool on the will. Oh, wow. Seacombe Promenade was the third stage linking Seacombe and New Brighton by one long continuous promenade. Before the promenade was built, 1901, there was a break in the riverbank, known to locals as Guinea Gap. This was a popular place for anyone wishing to go for a swim, as it was free from dangerous currents that lurk in the river itself. It was in this place that Seacombe and Eaglemont Swimming Club was founded back in 1890. They held meetings and competitions there as often as possible. The name of the club was later changed to Wallasey Swimming Club in 1913 and has remained as that since. The area where Guinea Gap Baths now stands was bought by the council in 1905. Originally there were four houses on this site. These buildings were demolished and the construction of Guinea Gap Baths began in 1906. Guinea Gap Baths were opened by Mr T. V. Burrows chairman of the health committee on the 7th of April 1908 for many years this was a favourite local swimming venue and family meeting place this elegant Edwardian building has graced the Mersey Riverbank and still does today instead of what could have been maybe those nasty luxury flats (coughs) that nobody likes luxury flats Almost all local people share memories of learning to swim there, of taking their children to be taught how to swim there, of joining a swimming club there, or of taking part in their swimming gala there. There are various rumours as to how Guinea Gap received its name, the most popular theory being an account of the amount of golden guineas from the reign of William III and others found by workmen around 1849. Possibly a pirate's treasure. Wouldn't that be an exciting thought? Another explanation for the name Guinea Gap comes from the word gin, gin, sorry, G-Y-N, meaning gap in the cliffs. A small river once ran into the river from this point. Since 1908, Guinea Gap Baths has enjoyed a colourful history. It has miraculously survived two world wars and during World War I even served as a rehabilitation hospital for the wounded soldiers being cared for at a makeshift hostel in Wallasey Town Hall. That is one of the things we at Wallasey Swimming Club are most proud of. Guinea Gap originally had seawater in it rather than the chlorinate water pools have today. 
its supply of seawater was drawn from the Mersey estuary. This fact may have been the key to the mystery that grew up around the baths. Although there are other seawater pools, Guinea Gap alone became famous throughout the country for the huge number of national and international swimming records broken there. Excellent coaching, a supreme effort from all the swimmers led to these record-breaking results. Between 1908 and 1957, no fewer than 205 world and national swimming records were achieved at Guinea Gap Baths. Believe it or not, Guinea Gap Baths also, oh, has also been a temporary home for some dolphins. Wow. If you don't believe it, just scroll down to the bottom of this page to see the video. Oh God, well, <laughs> with how can I see a video on a book? This must have been on a website you wrote this. He has got a website. I'm going to check this out. Fascinating. In 1990, Guinea Gap underwent an ambitious refurbishment. The Gala Pool was converted into a fresh water leisure pool for family swimming. Riverside Conservatory was also added, where you could can sit and enjoy the views over the Mersey to Liverpool while watching your children having fun in the pool. Perhaps just sit and drink a cup of coffee after a nice relaxing swim. The 25-yard training pool was upgraded and extended to 25 metres. This was to improve facilities for serious swimmers wishing to compete and those of special needs alike. A new sauna and fitness suite was created to replace the old sauna, originally built in an old air raid shelter. There you go, the Guinea Gap Baths. Um, next to the heading, New Brighton Bathing Pool. I've got a picture here of the bathing pool. New Brighton Bathing Pool was opened on the 13th of June 1934 by Lord Leverhulme at a cost of £103,240. It was the largest aquatic stadium in the world. 12,000 people attended the opening. The pool was built on sand, covering an area of approximately 4.5 acres and was a structure of mass concrete with the floor reinforced with steel mesh. It was covered with a rendering of white Portland cement with a skirting of black tiles. The pool was designed uh, as to gain as much sunshine as possible, therefore south-facing, and was sheltered from the northerly winds. The exterior walls were coated with snowcrete with special fine sand from Leighton Buzzard. Lights which lit up underwater were placed at the deep end for the night bathing. Wow, sounds amazing, doesn't it, really? And there's a picture of them all in the pool, bathing in the pool, swimming in the pool. Nice. The pool contained 1,376,000 gallons of pure seawater, which could be filled or emptied in eight hours. The pool was filled through the ornament cascade and the water was constantly changed and purified, filtered and chemically treated at a rate of 172,000 gallons per hour. The plant included chemical tanks, aerator, aerator, aminurator, aminurator, chlorinator, air compressor and electric motors for the pumps etc. A regular supply of water was obtained from the adjoining marine lake, which acted as a huge storage and settlement tank. The total filter area equaled 861 square feet. The rate of filtration was 200 gallons per square foot per hour. 
another picture here of the open air swimming pool. People in it, and I can see how they left the towels on the, on the benches there. The pool was designed to allow for championship swimming events, on the south being 165 feet, 32 laps to one mile by 60 feet. The central part of the pool for general swimming was 330 feet by 60 feet, 16 laps to the mile. The overall measurements of the pool, 6,500 square feet, 330 feet by 225 feet wide. On the north side, the shallow area was 330 feet by 105 feet. The pool could hold 4,000 bathers and some 20,000 spectators. The depth of the pool has an average of 5 feet, but at the diving end was 15 feet. The baths were also famous for annual events that were held within the complex, most notably the Miss Brighton, <laughs> the Miss New Brighton contest. The Miss New Brighton Bathing Girl contest started in the pool in 1949, when the first heat attracted only nine entrants. The following heat saw an increase to 23 entrants. The final was won by Miss Edna McFarlane, and as the rain teamed down, she collected her cup and a cheque for 75,000. So, wait a minute. Oh, that's 7 million. So, 75 and then the comma and 55. Oh, it's 70, yeah, sorry. Collected a cheque for 75 pounds. <laughs> it couldn't be 75. Uh, and 15,000 people paid to watch the event. I'm getting confused. The 50, look like 15,000 and 75 pounds is together there. And there's a picture of the lovely girls. Wow. And there with the cup. Miss New Brighton at the centre. Among the winners of Miss New Brighton, Violet Petty became the holder of the title in 1950. Well, wow, music's getting wild, isn't it? Getting wild for the Miss New Brighton. Barrett doing wild, isn't it? Wow. Ah, crescendo, it's getting to crescendo. Done. Wow. Psychedelic music and reading um, New Brighton. What more could you ask for? Among the winners of Miss New Brighton, Violet Petty became the holder of the title in 1950, entering whilst on a day trip from Birmingham at the age of 18. She later became known to millions as Anne Haywood, the ranked film actress. The late Miss New Brighton contest was held in 1989. Not only did the Bass hold local events, there was a major rock event also held on the premises. In May 1984, Granada Television staged a £100,000 pop spectacular under the title of New Brighton Rock, with leading group groups taking part. Frankie Goes to Hollywood was there. <laughs> it was a, singing Relax. It was attended by large crowds and screened on ITV on Saturday the 23rd of June 1984 at 10.30pm. 
We've got another picture here of the bathing pool. People on the on their you know what they call jumps. The admission fees were sixty for adults in the week and one and that forward slash and a dash on Sundays and bank holidays. Children paid four D and sixty. Non bathers were charged two D. At the end of the opening week, over hundred thousand people had paid to go into the new pool and on the Saturday a record was set when some thirty five thousand people went through the turnstiles. During the first four weeks, three hundred fifty thousand people went in, of whom eighty seven thousand four hundred were bathers. We've got a, a dismal picture of it or gone after the after the high gales, wasn't it? Wow. Destroyed. <laughs> so here we go, here's the description. Unfortunately, like many old traditional buildings in Wallasey, the bass took a direct hit from violent storms. The storms in February 1990, with hurricane force winds of almost 100 miles per hour, caused very severe damage to the pool when seas forced a hole into the foundations of the northwest corner of the complex, causing the upper, upper structure to cave in. With the cost of about £4 million to repair, uh, the damage it was decided by the authorities to demolish the building. The Merseyside Development Corporation bulldozers levelled the site in the summer of 1990. There you go. And there's a pictorial view of the building of the open air bathing pool between 1933 and 1934. So the foundation of the bathing pool, uh, wall of the bathing pool, August 1933. Wall at the deep end with Roshan Street in the distance, August 1933. Well, you can see the work gone into building it. Amazing structure, really. Looking northeast from the deep end, November 1933. An entrance to the dressing boxes, November 1933. Looking across the lighthouse. I can see St. James's Church in the background. And St. Peter's Church there. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. And Cafe Block from the Deep End, January 1934. And then View Towards Diving Board. That's what I was trying to say before, Diving Board, yeah. February 1934. Views at Spectators, Tears, January 1934. Yeah, I can see the where they sit. View towards Diving Board, July 1934. Great Diving Board. View towards the Diving Board's growing. View of the Administrative Block. View of the Dressing Block, April 1934. Administrative Block and Shops, May 1934. Men's dressing room, May 1934. View towards dressing block. This is in the early days of it, uh, of it being built. Pump house, May 1934. View of the cafe. Ooh, very nice cafe. The toilets with one penny turnstile. Changing cubicles. Ooh, look at the cubicles. Men's toilets. Fountain. Wow, how they got a fountain beside it? Slide and an administrative block, and slide and changing block. Well, we're going, we're going straight through the pages here, actually, with that. That was all pictures of the uh, 
open-air swimming baths. Now we're going to look at the Derby pool swimming baths, which is a bit further north up. The famous Derby pool stood on Harrison Drive in New Brighton and was named the racecourse built in the area of Lord Derby around the turn of the 17th century. Centuries later, the race course has long since disappeared, but the remains of the Art Deco swimming built in the early 20th century still remains. There's a picture of them all. The huge pool provided many hours of fun for the locals of Walsey and the day-trippers of Liverpool. Its huge outdoor swimming area made the pool an attraction during the summer months and was often, often the scene of vast overcrowding. Despite its popularity, the pool was damaged several times by storm, damaged, and was eventually shut down due to a lack of funds to repair the building in the late 1980s. So, the same as the open air swimming pool. Yeah. The building was refurbished many years later. Some of the original areas still stand. Today, the building is the Harvester restaurant, overlooking the Bay Area, and has been given the deserving name of the Derby Pool. So there you go. That's where it is. Ah, there it is. Yeah. The Derby pool. Okay, we've got through it. So, uh, that was chapter 10. Looking at... Uh, what was it looking at? <laughs> Going back here. So many pages. Sport and leisure. Oh, the big... Okay, next one, the penultimate one, I think, is looking at disaster. And there's not much writing going on there, so that's going to be a very, very short uh, <laughs> chapter. The, sh- the record in short, uh, short chapters. Okay, thanks for listening, and uh, may you join me for the last chapters. I'll probably read those last chapters uh, tomorrow tomorrow evening I think okay thank you for listening and uh, hope you've been enjoying the new Brighton Victorian seaside resort very eye revealing isn't it okay bye my friends to the sound of Pink Floyd